Good morning, all, and welcome to this week's episode of the CEO MomCast. I have with me today Lauren Smith Brody, the mom and founder behind the Fifth Trimester uh, Women's Advocacy Group, or should I just say Gender Equality Advocacy? Uh, Lauren, correct sure, me. Sure, yeah, down. no, all of it. Um, fifth, <laughs> trimester, fifth Trimester grew out of a book that I wrote that pulled together the experiences of hundreds of brand new moms who were going back to their paid work after maternity leave with sort of all approaches to motherhood, all definitions of career and ambition. Um, and I've turned that into a company that's now a consultancy. Um, and I go into businesses and help them do a better job of retaining moms um, and other caregivers now, particularly through the pandemic, that definition of like who's a caregiver and who gets seen as a caregiver and who deserves the rights that we all deserve has really expanded to include elder care and spousal care and care of big kids. And certainly dads are part of this part of this, not just part of the conversation, but part of the action around it. Um, so that's my business. Um, but then as we were just talking about offline, um, I also am the co-founder of a nonprofit called the Chamber of Mothers. And that's really where my public facing advocacy work is. We focus America's attention on the rights of moms. Amazing. Now, why and how did you start the fifth trimester? And was it started before Chamber of Mothers or did it stem yeah. from it? Yeah, no, so Chamber of Mothers is exactly a year old. Um, we formed uh, this nonprofit. We came together on, honestly, on Instagram, which sounds crazy, except like I love talking about it because let's legitimize the fact that like this is how a diversity of voices are coming together. Um, we formed the night that in President Biden's Build Back Better plan, there was a, um, a section of it that was for paid family and medical leave that eventually got... Um, got taken out. But the night we came together was fall of um, 2021. And um, the paid leave provision in the plan had been 12 weeks and it was dropped down to four weeks. And, you know, we're all like literally like stirring macaroni on our stoves or breastfeeding babies. And <laughs> a bunch of us are friends and had been friends really only online until this point. And we were like, this is crazy. And my co-founder, Erin um, Ehrenberg, who's the founder of Totem Women, um, was like, we cannot build back bleeding because at four weeks, if you have birthed a human, you are likely still bleeding. And that's not a time when you're really able to go back to work. And yet we know that 25% of American moms are back at their jobs within 10 days of having a baby, which is honestly, it's an, it's an, it's an atrocity. Um, so Chamber of Mothers has been around for a year, but um, fifth trimester is work that grew out of um, my previous career. So my whole 1.0 career was spent in women's magazines um, and brands. And 13 of those years were at Glamour Magazine where I led a team of 85 really creative, awesome, amazing women. And we got to, in our pages, you know, cover everything from mascaras to maternal health <laughs> and, and everything in between and, and um, talk about the ways that all of those things touched women's lives and their sense of identity. And I loved the work that we were doing. Um, and I got to do a lot of brand extension stuff. I worked on, I ran our women of the year awards for several years. Um, and I had, it was over 13 years. So I had both of my sons who are now 11 and 14 when I was there. And even though I was surrounded by these really forward thinking, awesome, creative women, there really wasn't a lot of visibility around being a mother. Um, and that sounds crazy. And I don't mean that people didn't have drawings that their kids made up at their desks or, you know, pictures of them. Like, of course they did, but there was a little bit of a kind of fake it till you make it mentality um, in publishing 
at that time. You were just sort of supposed to be grateful to be in a big shiny tower in the middle of New York City making, you know, in this glamorous job. And, and it was, and it was awesome. Um, but there was a lot of like, let's hide your personal life, or at least that's what I felt. So sorry, this is totally long-winded. But um, when I had my first son, I was already in a position of some executive privilege at that point. I had climbed the ladder um, to a point where I could be probably a little bit more transparent about what was hard about being a brand new mom coming back to my paid work um, than perhaps my colleagues had been able to be. I am also just not built to be a person who can lie. Like you can't see my face right now because we're just talking with um, with video <laughs> off, but like everything is written on my face at all times. Like my parents told me when I was a little kid, like don't even bother lying because <laughs> we know. And maybe, I don't know if they, they then like, you know, planted that seed in me. But anyway, I just, I can't spin anything. And I found that actually that authenticity and that rawness and talking about, you know, with my colleagues, why my focus might be a little off or why I had to leave early today or the fact that, you know, we were able to have a nanny, but that, you know, she had um, childcare challenges with her grandchild of her own that I was sort of having to kind of buffer as well. Those things ended up becoming an asset, um, much to my surprise, because I found that my colleagues who, like me, hadn't seen um, a lot of people be really visible about their parenting in the workplace were saying, oh, okay, I get it now. It looks hard, but it also looks like you're still putting one foot in front of the other and doing it and getting through it. And it is getting easier. And thank you so much. You've shown me that I'll be able to do this one day too. And that was for me a major eureka moment. And I sort of filed it away and realized there is this whole other trimester that mothers go through when they return to their paid leave or to their paid um, work after maternity leave. And it's a fifth trimester. I had become familiar with the term, the fourth trimester, the newborn phase when I, when I had a newborn baby and I was like, no, no, there's actually a whole other one. And it's an opportunity. And if you have privilege and obligation for those who are in it to really make cultural change at work um, in that moment as much as you can by being authentic and visible and asking for the support that you need, that people can't mind read that you need. And that, by the way, our country doesn't just provide as a matter of law, which it should. So fast forward another kid, fast forward a couple more promotions um, in corporate America. And I left to go write and research my book um, called The Fifth Trimester, which pulls together the experiences of more than 700 um, new working moms who were talking about, you know, what was hard for them, what they learned along the way, um, and to sort of collectively be a working mom mentor for each other so that these didn't have to necessarily just be individual problems to solve, but that collectively we could advocate for change together and we could identify the things that were working against us systemically. Um, and pulling together that research for that book and looking at the like thousands of pages of transcribed interviews just elucidated so much for me about the fact that this really wasn't an individual problem. This was really systems that were ancient as time and working against us and sexist and classist and racist and all the ists that, you know, unfortunately, so often it's on those of us who are most in it to also be the ones who have the energy to fix it and, or to find the energy to fix it. And so that really drove me to write the book. Um, the book came out, um, it was published by Doubleday in 2017, and then again in paperback in 2018. And from there, I launched a business. 
because I really, I knew that it was there and my social media presence was there offering all kinds of just like free supports and resources. And, you know, I live and breathe this stuff. So just posting everything I could um, to help support new moms who are kind of in the thick of it. Um, but then the business was really what was going to be sustainable for me to support my family. And so I started doing some speaking and I started doing some consulting and some management training and using what I had learned from these hundreds of moms and the new ones I was meeting every day to really help us distill lessons for management, um, with the assumption that everybody wants their workplace to be better at retaining folks. And I, I did a lot of pitching initially around like, oh, let's do the right thing. Who doesn't want to be nice to moms and babies, right? It's the most visible workplace need that a lot of people have for, you know, for their personal life. It's a big belly, like, like you could see it. And like, it's nice to have some cupcakes for the, for the baby shower. You know, it's, it's a, it's a happy occasion, um, more so than I see with employees who have say caregiving needs around, um, elder care, you know, hospice care, um, things that are, longer lasting and that are perhaps not as, um, not as fun to celebrate. Right. And, uh, and so I started pulling those supports into corporate America, mostly to law firms, um, tech companies and, um, financial firms, banks. And I found there was a real appetite for it. And over the pandemic, I was really able to expand and show that a lot of these lessons that we had learned about the um, the ROI, the return on investment, the economic case to be made for retaining moms could really be applied to all caregiving needs. And so that's allowed me to really expand my business to no longer say like, oh, just do the right thing, but like do the right thing and do the financially responsible thing. Um, and my hope is that, you know, every, every caregiving employee, you know, moms or otherwise who hears me talk, can use some of the research that I've got, can use, um, you know, some of the stories that I share to help them convince themselves, not just convince the person across the Zoom or the table who they're negotiating with to have an extra week of, you know, of maternity leave or to be able to have a flexible schedule or work differently to make it sustainable, but that they realize that actually there's a case to be made, not just for supporting them as individuals, but when they make that ask, they're asking on behalf of everyone who works with them, whose voice for one reason or another may not be able to be as loud. And that they're asking on behalf of their employer, their company, whose retention rates will be so much higher, who will be so much more profitable if they're able to keep women in the pipeline to leadership. Um, that was a super long answer to your question. <laughs> I've clearly had a lot of coffee. No, that's okay. It's a lot. It's a lot to unpack, and so it can't just be a simple answer. I a hundred percent understand that. Um, first of all, I knew your name looked familiar. I've read Glamour magazine since I could probably read, oh. so it makes sense that I recognize your name. I'm like, I've seen that somewhere before, so but funny. now it all makes sense. Um, and secondly, a hundred percent to everything that you said. I know. Again, we talked about this offline. Um, I'm Canadian. When I had my children, I, it was no question that I was staying home. Um, you know, our government provides a 55% wage subsidy for the whole year that I'm off. Um, we didn't have to worry about where our money was coming from for bills, who was raising our children, trying to find daycare, which I mean, I've heard how atrocious it is to try to find daycare. I couldn't even yeah. imagine. Um, you know, people putting their belly on waiting lists at daycares, literally, because mm -hmm. their child wasn't even born yet. 
Yeah. And now Canada has even gone to a point of 18 months of maternity leave at reduced pay because of how hard it is to get children into decent childcare before 15 months of right. age. Mm-hmm. Um, this was never anything for me to worry about. And as the neighboring country to the United States, we just think everything is on par, should be. Mm. You know, the United States is this superpower that is leaps and bounds ahead of so many. So it seems yet in something that is so simple and a given in so many countries, not just Canada, most of Europe, Australia, New Zealand, they all have some form of paid maternity leave. Um, The United States is archaic. Yeah. The United States is the only country in the industrialized world that doesn't offer paid maternity leave. The only one. And, and it shows, um, Mm -hmm. it shows in, you know, the 30% of women who leave the workforce within a year of having baby. That's no good for the GDP. That's no good for families. Um, You know, certainly these women are also raising babies who will go on to support our economy one day and who need the example set for them of parents who can have families and have and contribute to the economy, um, you know, in industry. Um, a lot of what I do is I say, I kind of do two things. So when, whether I'm speaking to an audience of like 2000 people, or I'm doing a one-on-one coaching call, I'm teaching people to resentment proof their life. And I'm also undoing a lot of what we normalize here in America that is actually completely abnormal globally. And it's so interesting to me when you look at the history of some of the protections that have passed for for parents, um, how we've normalized that like kind of just barely good enough, not even good enough law. So for instance, the, the history of FMLA, which is our 12 weeks of unpaid um, paid, uh, unpaid family and medical leave where um, the law is your job has to, a job or a, an equivalent job has to be held for you um, after you have been out to care for yourself or an immediate family member. Um, so for instance, like on a maternity leave has to be held for you for, for 12 weeks unpaid. Um, even that law is only accessible to, I think it's just shy of 60% of the population because of all of the stipulations around it. You have to be in an, like in order for the employer to have to provide it, they need to have 50 or more employees. You need to be within a 50 mile radius. You need to have been at that job for, um, I think it's a year or more. So there's all kinds of stipulations that actually make it inaccessible to a huge percentage of moms. And especially to lower income moms and lower and hourly wage working and shift working moms um, who very often do not fit all those criteria that you need to have it. But the history, so it's already completely inequitable and unfair. And we know that women are more likely to do those hourly wage jobs and women of color are particularly more likely to do those hourly wage jobs. And that something like, I think it's 45% of American households have either a solo breadwinning mom or a primary breadwinning mom. So you can sort of see how this just dramatically more affects moms. But the cool, not cool, it's bad, but it's this interesting sort of piece of history that I didn't realize that kind of cracked open for me a lot of what I was seeing around the fifth trimester return and the so-called mom guilt that people had 
is that FMLA was signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1993. It was actually, it, it was either the first or one of the first pieces of legislature that passed um, under his, um, in his first term. And the history of it at that point was actually, it had been proposed again and again and again for nine years um, for the United States to have paid family and medical leave, but it was originally proposed to be paid and to be for six months because wow. six months is actually the amount of time that even way back then, what is that like 30 years ago was shown to be protective of the minimum amount shown to be protective of mom's mental health, mom's physical health, dad or partner's bond with the baby, mom's ability to maintain her income and her status at work. Like all the data for all those different areas, like mental health, physical health, um, you know, socioeconomic, all coalesces around six months. And so that was the legislation that was proposed, six paid months. The 12 unpaid weeks that eventually passed were always meant to be a Band-Aid. And so we have so much work to do. And there are a lot of amazing advocacy organizations that are working so, so hard to get paid leave passed. And I do feel a glimmer of hope that, that it will it will come soon. Um, but the thing that I wanted to talk about with you is this normalization that I hear all the time from people who say, did you get your whole 12 weeks? Did you get your whole 12 weeks of leave? Were you able to take your whole 12 weeks? Or people saying that if their employer's are able to offer, say, two months, three months, four months of paid leave, that that's generous. And it shouldn't have to be, I mean, my clients are the private sector, right? Like it shouldn't have to be on the private sector to make up for a, a completely inhumane federal law. Um, and they are generous for doing more than required by law, but they also are making smart business decisions because they know that that's actually what's going to attract and retain the best and brightest talent. But they're left, you know, we are left as a public thinking that if you go back at 12 weeks and you don't feel good, that something's wrong with you or that you should feel guilty because you've made a so-called bad choice. And mom guilt is a sexist, classist, racist, social construct. And FMLA contributes to that because you have this whole class of women who do have access to FMLA or who are able to take some time away from their jobs unpaid. And they come back and they're like, wow, this is still really freaking hard. Like what's wrong with me? I must have something wrong with me. And they spiral. And that's, that's where I, that, that's where I have open arms and I'm like, okay, come here, let's talk. Um, <laughs> it's really startling. Now, that leads me to another question. Do you find, I've noticed more and more since moving down here, starting to look at employment and things, that more and more employers are starting to offer their own paid maternity benefits to women. And I shouldn't even just say women, because they are classing a lot of it as family leave, like primary caregivers can take it as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there is, you know, I do think that it is incumbent upon the private sector, particularly in the healthiest fields to offer paid family and medical leave. And, and many, many, many companies do um, certainly in the healthiest sectors they do because it's the only way they can actually attract the best talent. The problem that I see very often is that there's a division between what's offered at like a big massive company, right? But between the benefits that are offered to staff and to executives or to corporate versus the hourly wage workers. And I will say, you know, companies like Starbucks and Amazon get a lot of flack, you know, in many ways for, um, 
just because of their sheer size and because of the diversity of, of the needs of their workforce. But those are two companies that offer universally the same benefits to caregiving employees. Um, you know, they all get the same amount, whether you're working in the corporate office at the, in the C-suite or you're working on a fulfillment center floor at Amazon, you're getting the same amount of access to um, paid parental leave. And that is, I think, a big shift that's going to be happening over the next couple of years as this becomes, you know, so much more the responsibility of the private sector to sort of reset cultural norms in our country. Because then what's going to happen is that, um, first of all, they're responsible for, for keeping this from becoming like even more of a class divide, right? Like if you have only some employees at, at a company who are the highest earners already and who already have the most resources, then getting access to even more resources in terms of humane leave and, you know, those who have fewer resources not getting access to it, that, that creates a further divide in our country that's just devastatingly bad. And we, we see the results of that in our, even our maternal mortality numbers, which are atrocious, which are lower than any country in the developing world is essentially, this is like very boiled down, but like while the rest of the world has decreased their maternal mortality by about 50%, the United States maternal mortality rates have gone up by 50%. And we know that three to four times um, that black and brown women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than, than um, their white counterparts. It is all of these issues, like I sound like I'm sort of talking like, like in a big ball of string, but they all completely overlap and intersect. And the reason that I am so passionate about supporting federally passed paid leave is because that is the entry point to a lot of this, these inequities for a lot of families. It's when they're pregnant, it's when they're trying to figure out like, how do I keep earning an income? How do I afford childcare? That they make a lot of these decisions is probably the wrong word because it implies agency and choice, which so many mothers don't have access to, but it's when they make those life changes and transitions that can get them off of, you know, the sort of earning track for the rest of their lives, or in many cases can push them to go out of the security of a traditional job where they may have something like health insurance, you know, um, and, and regular benefits and go off on their own out of necessity because it's the only way they can get the flexibility that they need. Um, does that, does that answer your question? hundred percent. Um, and I love that you've pointed out the transition to, um, I was just about to say unpaid work, but that wasn't what you said at all. The transition to self-employment and having yeah. their own skill set. I've noticed that that has been a huge thing during COVID. Um, parents had no choice, but to kind of pivot and figure out how they were going to homeschool their children, keep them safe, yeah. earn an income, um, especially in, you know, the United States. It's, yeah. yes, there was some stimulus checks sent out to people to help them, but, you know, there was a decrease in so many social services that were available in different states. And, um, you know, Canada went, Canada went on the flip side and started paying everybody to stay at home, which wasn't a great thing, trust me. Um, you know, we all filed our income tax and saw how bad it was, yeah. but there was really no happy medium, but now you've seen that the workforce has really thinned out. It's hard to get employees. Yeah. Um, it's hard to attract and retain good employees, like you have said, because women especially have found other ways to earn an income and raise their family and not be a slave to the nine to five, which isn't necessarily going to benefit them. 
So that is everything you're saying is true, but I want to add a huge asterisk to it, which is that, you know, the story that a lot of us, myself included, were telling in the summer of 2020 and the winter of 2021 went something like this. Women, moms are leaving the workforce. Don't call it dropping out. We're leaving because we're not getting the support we need. And that was true, but it was largely true for financially secure women. When you look at what happened, um, and there's just now data that is trickling out. Um, I just read an article in the Atlantic this week that just distilled a lot of it. And it, it really undid a lot of the storytelling that many of us have been doing. It was like poor women did not stop working. They may have been laid off, but they got new work because they are essential workers. They had to keep working. There was no option of even leaving to go start their own thing. That what what ended up happening essentially is that poor women um, worked more and had fewer kids because it was simply not sustainable to be able to bring new life into already, you know, research poor, a resource poor situation and wealthier women and more educated women, um, or women who had more education, I should say, um, started having actually the birth rate went up and, um, and did decrease their amount of employment. And there's not a lot of good ways to measure like who's working for themselves versus who's working for the proverbial man. And so some of this is kind of mushy data and it's important to acknowledge that, but it is um, actually, I drew a big K, the letter K on my Instagram stories the other day, because an economist explained to me what a K-shaped recovery is, which is that when you think about the two legs of the K, the one that goes from the middle of the, um, like the backbone of the K up and the one that goes from the middle down, um, if time is the X axis and resources are the Y axis, those who were on that top leg to begin with did better and better and better. And the same thing is this interview actually was in the context of, um, of kids' school performance and kids who had access to education over the pandemic versus, versus not quality education. Um, so those who were on that upper leg, like they continued to climb up. And those who were on the lower leg of the K slid further down. And so over time, when you scooch over all the way to the right of that X-axis, the divide is further. And so it's incumbent and mandatory for those of us who have survived this. And, and I don't mean to undermine the experience of people like me who like, I lost like half my business in the first year of the pandemic. Um, financially, my family could weather that. It wasn't simple, but it was it was okay. And my, uh, my husband has a job at a hospital and has you know, um, steady employment and our health benefits are, are his. Um, so that was, you know, that made it okay for us. Um, but I don't want to diminish what was an incredibly hard, too hard experience for literally everyone, but it is incumbent upon those of us who have survived or who have found a way to pivot or thrive or work for themselves in a way that's sustainable to now do the harder work of acknowledging all those families for whom there really wasn't choice and agency um, in terms of how we address, you know, like learning loss at our schools, you know, not thinking about not just our own kids, but like kids who had less, right. Um, in terms of how we address, you know, um, pay equity in the workforce, you know, like you're not just negotiating for your own raise at this point, you're negotiating for everybody who is marginalized in any way that you are and more. Right. Um, 
And I think that that's a really important mind shift um, for a lot of moms who frankly have been through a lot already and are exhausted, <laughs> but to, to remember that as well. And I said that like when they switched to homeschooling and everything, I just looked at my husband and I said, how lucky are we? How lucky are we that I am a work from home mom and I can be with our kids and this is not a struggle for us. Yeah. I couldn't even imagine being in those shoes, trying to figure out how to wear those four hats all at the same time. And like, and like, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here because I also like, I coach women directly who are high earners and, and who did go through this and who were home with their kids because their husband's jobs had less flexibility. And suddenly they sort of fell on gendered lines in a way that they never intended to. But like, I do not want to diminish that experience. Like it was really hard. And I think we see in, you know, the mental health results of that, you know, across the country, but particularly for mothers, um, that there are lingering and lasting effects. And I'm also somebody who believes in like, if you have a hard day, like, oh my God, can we please just feel sorry for ourselves for a minute? Cause I think that does help sometimes, right? Like I don't always, I'm kind of more into like adaptability than resilience. I'm all about like, yes, I know that there's a lot of like research and literature around resilience being great for our kids and great for everybody. But at some point, like, oh, screw that. Like you shouldn't have to be resilient from this terrible thing, right? Like I think it's okay to lick our wounds a little bit too, but then like, absolutely, as we do that, also think about others. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is, this is such a great conversation. We're covering so many things and honestly, bottom line is it's not even advocating for gender equality anymore. It's just advocating for equality for humans. There was more equality for humans. We wouldn't be in half the mess we are. And, um, I know we could go on and on and on about this for days and I'm sure that you do because it's your passion, it's your lifeline, like your work. And, um, but let's switch gears just a little bit. You have two boys. Are they involved in your work at all? Oh my gosh. I love that you asked that. Um, they are, they, I mean, yeah, in the, okay. So they are 11 and 14, which I, I work mostly with moms of little, little babies and, and toddlers. Right. And so I, for years sort of struggled with this idea that like, maybe I was, you know, like, I don't know, I was out of my depth because I was so far from the baby years, but the older they get, I love the big kid years. And so are they involved in my work? I mean, they will come with me. They will make a sign and come to a rally for paid family leave. Yes. Like in that way, they are directly involved, but their involvement really is often in the way that they just, that, that justice issues for this generation of kids, at least, at at least my little micro generation living here in New York city, which is like admittedly a progressive place to live and a diverse and like beautiful place to live. Um, they teach me so much about diversity and equity and inclusion and belonging, like largely because they learn it at school, but also because kids are such amazing arbiters of what's fair. And this would be true, like even, you know, in much younger years. And certainly when I was writing my book, I remember my younger son was, was four. And there were a number of times where he would be like, but that's not fair about, you know, I don't remember what it was like, you know, (laughs) who got, who got the bigger lollipop. Right. Right they have such an innate sense of justice. And 
I draw on that all the time in the work that I do. And they also were very good at like looking out for the underdog and, um, and they're not afraid to speak up and they're not afraid to infiltrate and go in and make things better and more fair. And so I draw a lot of inspiration from them. Um, I also, you know, often, um, and I still do this, but like very often, particularly early in my fifth trimester work before the pandemic, when people were, you know, the, most of the people I was just talking to were going into a workplace as opposed to having some sort of hybrid situation, I would say, be really open and honest about your motherhood at work. Like tell people when you are leaving to go to a kid thing, you know, like really basic sort of examples like that. And I still believe that. I think that transparency and that um, sort of not faking it till you make it um, does make big progress. But what I found over the pandemic and particularly with my own kids is that the inverse is also true, which is that I used to do a lot of like bringing work home but I would like hide the folder away. I wouldn't open my laptop until their heads were on the pillow. And then I would like, you know, make myself stay up really late. I didn't want them to see that mommy was working, you know, that like obviously went out the window because they were <laughs> doing remote school and I was trying to salvage my business. And so they saw all of it. And I in turn got to hear a lot of what they were learning, which was amazing. Um, but I think it's good for kids to see us work and for kids to see us have some successes and the victories of that. And also for kids to see us struggle and for just kids to see that like, sometimes work can be boring or uninspiring um, or challenging, or you deal with difficult people um, and you get through it anyway, and you keep going and you find adaptability and solutions. And I've learned that that's not stuff that should be hidden away from kids because ultimately we're modeling for them what we want them to be able to do one day too, which by the way, also includes taking time to take care of yourself. hundred percent. And, and that is actually one of my fears as a parent, like my kids, I want to make sure that they can advocate for themselves and that they do stick up for the underdog, like you said. And I feel that I don't want to class it as all of society because it's not. We have turned a corner that there is a lot of advocacy these days and a lot of people are not afraid to stand up for what's right and for others. But I still feel that sometimes it's frowned upon to be the loudest voice in the mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. And you I know. worry about that with my kids. I find, you know, I have a young daughter and I say to her all the time that uh, you can do everything that boys can do and you can't just sit there and let them say to you, no, you can't do that because you're a girl. That's, that's not how it works. There are, you know, we're, we're not trying to break gender norms necessarily, but uh, I mean, anything that you can do, I can do better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I grew up on that term and I've always been a very loud advocate for everything that I believe in. Um, unabashedly. I mean, it might get me into trouble sometimes, but I don't <laughs> see that in my kids. And I'm not sure if that's a schooling system that we're in. Um, that they're just, um, maybe it's not as diverse as New York city. Cause like you say, your boys learn a lot, very diverse and cultural. I feel like the school is cultural, but I just don't feel the diversity there. So I feel like my mm -hmm. kids are missing out on that. And that's one of my biggest fears because I don't want them to be ignorant to what's going on in the world around them. Well, I think, you know, as much as kids are arbiters of fairness, they're also, they're just like, they're so naturally talented at empathy too. And I think that, you know, look, there's a lot of kinds of diversity that are not visible, 
you know, my husband's a psychiatrist. We talk about, you know, mental health issues all the time, many of which are not visible. Um, my kids both have learning disabilities and they have learned to speak up at their school about the accommodations that they need because that, and it's funny, there's like a, there's a real, there, a trend and a movement and an understandable one that a lot of people like to call them learning differences, like in our house, like, no, we really feel strongly it's a disability because disabilities are protected by law, um, mm-hmm. discrimination against disability. And um, so, you know, I just think there's so many ways all day long, you know, even if you are not in a particularly culturally, religiously, or racially diverse area, first of all, to be really purposeful in, you know, even just the play dates you make with your kids. I have a, one of the talks I give about pandemic recovery for parents acknowledges that for a lot of, um, for a lot of families early in, you know, 2000 and 2001, um, particularly parents who had uh, little, little kids and who didn't have access to schools or daycares, they formed learning pods. And of course, most often they were pretty homogenous because it's the people who live close to you, right? It's the people who you aren't afraid to have a financial conversation with. Of Like we think you, it's kind of like going on vacation with people, right? Like you're only okay. going to do it if you both can afford like sort of the same thing. And, and so those groups are very naturally pretty homogenous. And so it takes a shaking off of that very purposefully to say like, we got to get rid of sort of this pod mentality and like, it may take more effort for me to go take my child to a play date, you know, with a kid who lives further afield than the other kids. But like, that's good for my kid. That's good for that kid. And and I, if I have the privilege and flexibility to be able to go take that time to do that, I should, and I should make the effort. That's a very good point. That is Now, um, Lauren, do you have time to pursue your personal passions or are you all wrapped up in this all the time? (laughs) You know, I'll never know if it's like the age I am, I'm 45 or the pandemic or the age of my kids or where we live or whatever, but like, you know, my personal passions in some ways are my work. And that's probably, you know, I don't know, five years ago, I would have said like, that is not healthy. You need to have hobbies like, "Mm." I don't know. It feels like I am in this very precious moment of being able to earn a living doing work that I love that feels like it can do some good in the world, model that for my kids, and then also spare time for my nonprofit work, which is a good 30% of the time that I spend. Um, And that to me is, is what I enjoy doing. I mean, I love there's almost, there's very few things that I do that don't touch on my work in some way. Like, you know, I love reading. Um, and so often I'm drawn to, even when I'm reading fiction, you know, fiction that touches on some of these themes of, of equity or about the early motherhood experience. Um, you know, or like, I'm so lucky that I have flexibility to do a lot of my meetings on, you know, like with AirPods in and walking around central park. And I'm very like, you know, when you were saying that you, um, you're worried sometimes about being the loudest voice in the room or, or, you know, you're worried about that for your daughter. Like my answer to that is always to say like, you know, I'm one of these people who's kind of always the loudest voice in the room. So forgive me for saying this so loudly, but you know, and then also make (laughs) sure of course that you save time for other people, but like, I will, probably push it a little bit far in terms of who I'm willing to have a walking meeting with while talking on the phone. Um, 
you know, I don't always show up, you know, with makeup on and my clothes like perfectly ironed for every meeting. Now, if it's like a client that is I'm wooing and it's going to pay my mortgage, you know, with the work they're going to give me in the next quarter so that I can also continue to do my nonprofit work and be around for my kids after school. Um, you know, then I'll, I'll perform it. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I just find authenticity is the key to everything I do. And that is like not, um, accessible for everyone. And because it is for me, I'm trying to model it as best I can. No, that's good. And, and I, honestly, one thing I have to say that I have found across doing this for over a year now is that 99% of the moms that I have talked to tell me that their business is their passion. And I think mm-hmm. that that's very important because, um, especially for me, I never wanted to have a passionless life. I say that to my husband all the time, sometimes that I envy him, that he found a career that he loves and he's super happy just doing the nine to five Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not me. I always want more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's great that you can find your passion in your work and then it doesn't really feel like work anymore. Right. Yeah. You know, I will say to add sort of one extra dimension to this, I just went on a, um, I was really, really honored to be invited to go on this trip that Marie Claire does every year called the power trip. And they do not tell you, it's just, it's, it's like, I don't know, 80 women or so who they invite, who are all leaders in various fields. They don't tell you who else is coming. They don't tell you the agenda and like, no joke. They put you on a plane and don't tell you where you're going until you're on the plane with like two female pilots. It's awesome. Um, and one of my big takeaways from that, other than, um, being able to now give my elevator pitch, like, like it's nothing, like I could walk into any room now and meet strangers and be fine, which is something that's always been a little bit hard for me. But after those 36 hours on that trip of meeting all these amazing women, like I can do it. The other big takeaway was that the editor in chief of, um, of Marie Claire, Sally Holmes, um, who is a mom of twins who are nine months old said at the beginning of the trip, she was like, this trip is all about surprise and delight because every single one of you, I know what your calendar looks like. I know how busy you probably are and how scheduled you are and how, um, regimented you probably are about a lot of that stuff. And all we want is for you to have surprise and delight. And I thought, Oh my God, I don't even know. Like, what is that? (laughs) Every step of the way, like every place we showed up, you know, we were on the plane, then we were on the bus. We didn't know where we're going and the door would open. And you were like, oh, I am indeed both surprised and delighted right now. And it was a wonderful feeling. And so I don't know how I'm going to like find that in my like real <laughs> life not on a sponsored trip, but I, I think I'm going to start leaving some room in my life for spontaneity, you know, um, just, this is a really simple example, but it gives me a lot of pleasure. Um, You know, I have a couple of friends who are not like my closest, closest friends, but who I love sort of collaborating with and, um, and talking to and workshopping things with, um, who I will schedule a like walking meeting with the two of us will meet up and walk. And I, you know, I'm going to do a little bit more of like, Hey, are you free in 10 minutes? Want to put on sneakers as, as opposed to planning something for next Tuesday. And I think that that will help with that. That's great. That's so great because nothing in life is spontaneous anymore. 
I don't think anybody has it. You can't, I mean, I I, I hate to blame it on the pandemic again, but everything had to be scheduled and time slotted and this and that. But yes, where did spontaneity go? Oh, and by the way, like the only way anyone's doing that is if they have childcare in place. Like my kids are in in in-person school. Like that's why I can do that. Let's acknowledge that too. (laughs) I know my husband said that to me the other day. He took a day off and the kids are at school and he goes, oh, I'm going to see what it's like to be you for a day. And you know, what is it that you do after the kids go to school? And then all of a sudden it was like two o'clock. And I said to him, didn't get much done today. Did you? He goes, oh my gosh, we have to go get the kids already. And I said, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is good. There's a reason that like, there's a study that shows that for every month of paternity leave, this is like a obviously very heteronormative study, but for every month of paternity leave a dad takes, um, mom's lifetime earnings increase by 7%. And like, clearly that's not because of that month that she was working and earning money. It's because like dad understands what it takes and, and approaches childcare with perhaps something closer to the level of professionalism that mom may have learned to on her longer than his family leave, you know, previously. Um, And mom learns to hopefully quit gatekeeping a little bit and let him do things the way that works. That has been our family transition this year. It's been great. I'll tell you that much. I've gone back into full-time work and just kind of had to hand over the reins. My house might be a mess, but my children are cared for and my sanity is back where it needs to be. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Now, just a one-off question for you, Lauren, finish this sentence for me. All I want for Christmas is... (laughs) All I want for Christmas is... Oh my gosh. What do I want on Christmas? So we're Jewish. Um, so, oh my, I don't even know what I want. I have what I want. I want, you know what? No, I want an afternoon, um, staring at some body of water and reading an amazing book, literally start to finish the whole thing just because I can. Oh my gosh. Woman after my own heart. The water is exactly where I need to be at all times to be totally (laughs) calm. And I can't even tell you the last time I read a book. (laughs) Oh, there's so many good ones right now too. I I really really think it's worthwhile. (laughs) I also like, I will rationalize anything and I could even rationalize if I needed to, because of the nature and flexibility of my work sitting for two hours and reading a book. I actually, I had so many books that were, um, professional books, like, you know, things related to DEIB and to early motherhood and things that people have me reading before they come out so that I can hopefully help endorse them, that kind of thing, like definitely part of my work, but I kept saving it for like my bedtime reading. And that made me start to feel a little like bit of resentment creep, all like wonderful, wonderful stuff, but like not what I should be reading before bed. It should actually be part of my work day. And so I've started to build time into my work day. Once every two weeks, I set aside a day called a reading day where I just am allowed to sit in the most comfortable clothes possible and read. That is like the greatest thing ever. I might have to but start it would not happen that. if I did not schedule it. <laughs> right? I might have to start doing that. Just scheduling an afternoon to read your catch up on my pile of magazines here on the side of my desk. Exactly. And then you have to make sure not to do laundry at the same time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's all about the reading. Well, exactly. Lauren, it has been amazing and eye-opening speaking with you today um, for all my listeners 
Lauren is kind of one half of the interview. We've covered the fifth trimester and some of the Chamber of Mothers. She did mention her co-founder, Erin, who will be on next week's episode. Get a little more information from her point of view and some more on Chamber of Mothers. If you've never heard of the group, please search them on Instagram. It's just Chamber of Mothers. Lauren is the fifth trimester. Easy to follow. Tons of information, links, posts full of useful information um, and easy contact info as well if you want or have questions for them. Um, Anything else you want to add, Lauren? No, you totally covered it. It's great. If you work for an employer that needs to bring me in and needs help, um, please think of me, DM me on Instagram or come to my website and email me there. It's the fifth trimester.com. And I'm super duper excited for you to have Erin on. She's the executive um, director of Chamber of Mothers um, and one of my co-founders. And she will tell you about a lot of amazing initiatives we have going on that are like they light me up. And um, we actually just, as like we're talking, we're just, I've got my WhatsApp going with with our Chamber of Mothers group about who is going to be able to join. Um, we're all going to um, to DC in two weeks. We were invited to be at a small round table about maternal wellness and health to contribute what's happening in our communities and to advocate for the rights of all moms. And like, this is why we're doing it. So I'm so excited for you to hear from Erin. She is a force of nature. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to her. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.